Dr. Kelly, I don't want to brag too much about you, but not only are you a medical doctor who graduated from Ohio State University, not only are you a 10-year member of the Institute of Functional Medicine, but you're also the treasurer for the International Alignment Associated Diseases Society, which we know is a really prestigious position, and we want to thank you for dedicating your time to do that and help us in this chronic Lyme community. I mean, you're a founding member of the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. You're on the faculty at Feinberg Medical School. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You've worked at Whole Health Chicago, Michigan Avenue Immediate Care, St. Joseph's Hospital. So then you went on, of course, to form Case Integrative Health, where you are today. And your wonderful practice helping a ton of people in the Lyme community all over the world that come to see you. So it's an honor. You've been on our Lyme Hackathon now in uh, May for Lyme Awareness Month in 2020, 2021, 2022, and here again in 2023, your Lyme hack just went up a few days ago. This is our fourth podcast interview with you. Your first one was, and this is a good one, folks. This is the personal story of Dr. Casey Kelly, episode 98 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And then the last two years, we had you on for episode 170 and 275 for Lyme Awareness Month with this Instagram-style Q&A. And that was a really fun, informative chat that's on our podcast as well. And we really want to jump right in. So, Rich, you want to pick it up with the first question that you got for? Let's talk about what has developed in the Lyme community over the course of the last year since we've had the uh, good fortune of interviewing. We're still, you know, lacking in lab testing for sure. But I do see momentum coming. I see a lot more research about it. I see science coming behind it and really starting to kind of push that forward, which is really exciting from a provider standpoint, as well as a patient standpoint, because if we can get more definitive testing to know acute, chronic, persistent, gosh, that would be a game changer. So I'm excited to see some of that happening. Um, I think too, since just the pandemic in general, I think that there's definitely been a mind shift change about the immunological ramifications of an infection. And so we're seeing a broader reach of individuals and, and research and, and other things where people are understanding that. And we in the Lyme community have known that for a long time, right? So we're really kind of glad to see those, those changes too. You know, there's definitely some research still coming out with different treatments and protocols, like we're, but you know, there's still a lot to, to go with all of this. Um, but I see things moving in, in the right direction, which is really exciting. It is really exciting. And, and, and Matt, if I could just make one more observation, I mean, I, I think we are certainly moving to a place where folks recognize that Lyme disease is a chronic disease, right? And, and for a long time, we've had to sort of fight that fight. And it does certainly crop up every once in a while. I mean, we, you know, Matt has been uh, wise enough to post uh, the 700 peer-reviewed studies that certainly support that Lyme disease is a chronic disease. We've actually, uh, you know, we've been uh, beating the drum on defining uh, Lyme disease only as a chronic illness. And we'll talk more about that as time goes on. But I, I think that's really been one of the most positive developments since COVID that uh, we seem to be battling that element of, of, of this battle less often than we had just Agreed. a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's exciting actually, it's good stuff. <laughs> so I wanna circle back Dr. Kelly to your talk about science, right? And science finally catching up a little bit to the Lyme community. and. Just last week, the CDC backed a study that came out talking about this interferon alpha, which is an immune marker they found in every single chronic Lyme patient, or as they called it, PTLDS treatment uh, patient, right? So this is exciting in many ways because people think it could be a, you know, used to develop a treatment for people that are suffering with persistent chronic Lyme symptoms. But on the other side, it always makes me anxious because is this going to be you know, a false belief that there's gonna be a magic bullet for chronic Lyme, right? 
I think it can be helpful, but I want to be careful to not overestimate the power of this discovery. So what are your thoughts on this? Can you give us some insights? And am I wrong? Do you think that this is something that can have some power and some oomph behind it for our community? I wish there was a magic bullet, but I think that these infections are way too complicated and complex for that to work for everybody every time. Um, the terrain is so different in every person who gets this. I think part of what makes chronic Lyme and vector-borne illnesses so complicated is they're so different in every patient. You know, um, depending on, do you, is it just Lyme? Is it Lyme and Babesia? Is it Lyme and Bart? Is it Lyme, Babesia and Bart? You know, and, and what's underlying the terrain, what other, you know, gut disruption they have or neurological disruption. There's just, there's so many layers to this. You have to really, in my mind, like really have that integrative mindset of the system as a whole and be able to look at everybody individually to, to really get in and deep and change it. So for some people, there might, you know, this is a possibility, this is an immune, you know, trying to look at that immune dysfunction that happens and repairing that, which is awesome. And a huge part of what we have to do to heal this. But I, I would I would hold my breath about like a magic bullet for, for anything just because it's just too complicated. You know, I wish it were that easy. I really truly do. I just I fear that it's not. So Dr. Kelly, one of the things that we are doing is challenging people to redefine Lyme disease, right? Uh, and I think one of the reasons why a practitioner who is not as well versed as you are in Lyme disease, just a general practitioner. Who is, who is presented with the symptoms is always going to struggle with diagnosing someone with Lyme disease if they don't have a definition, right? And uh, we've had a debate with a lot of different experts um, in this community about what Lyme disease is. And our position at Take Boot Camp is that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. What's your reaction to our definition of Lyme disease? And do you believe that if that, if that, um, definition were accepted by general practitioners in the community in general, that we, we would put ourselves in a position where we're more likely to be diagnosed with Lyme disease cl uh, clinically, even if we haven't gotten to the point where we can, we can develop the kind mm -hmm. of testing that yeah. you spoke about I think, earlier. You know, we use Lyme disease as an umbrella term quite often, you know, um, in this community and outside of the community, even people who don't necessarily know they're using it as an umbrella term, because technically it's Borrelia burgdorferi. I mean, that's Lyme. But in Europe, they call it Borreliosis because there are multiple Borrelia species that cause human infection, human disease. And most patients don't just have Borrelia. They have a handful of Borrelia and Babesia and Anaplasma and all these other infections and viruses and Candida and, you know, all these the multiple critters kind of hanging out in their system. So I agree with you. I think that this is, it's more than just Borrelia burgdorferi, for sure. And I think that's part of what makes it so complicated and complex because it tends to kind of get pigeonholed as that one thing and it's not just that one thing. And it is multi-systemic and it is multifactorial and it is all of those things, um, which makes it hard to diagnose and makes it hard to treat too. So Matt, let's, let's talk a little bit about the terrain side of things, right? Because, um, you know, of course, we. We do have this this polymicrobial infection, but it's not just the microbes that are spit into us by either the tick bite or multiple tick bites, but we could be harboring and we are harboring a number of different microbes in our system just by living life, right? And our, our, our immune system is managing that. 
and until it can't. But you know, one of the things that we've learned from some of the interviews we've we've done, especially with this great interview we recently published with Dr. Ava Shapi, is that she talked about how the microbe load that we're already carrying will then, in many cases, work with Lyme to to um, to um, you know break down our immune response or, or destroy our capacity to defend us. So, so you can first talk to us a little bit about how the the germs that are spit into us by by, uh, by a tick bite combine with the other microbes we're harboring and how that makes it mm -hmm. even more difficult. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of mind boggling sometimes, but if you think of your body as an ecosystem, like we're full of non-us, right? We've got all kinds of bacteria, parasites, viruses, the whole works in our system. And some of them work for us and some of them work against us, right? Um, and that combination is gonna be different in different people. And so the response to a new infection is gonna be different in different people in part because of that of what's already there. And I will describe it sometimes as immune system whack-a-mole. When your body's busy trying to treat one thing, something else pops up, you know? So it's always trying to kind of like keep on top of all that's exhausting for the, for the system to, to handle. I think of the terrain as my current ecosystem with all the good, bad, and otherwise ugly bugs, right? And then my system. So how is my, what's the health of my gut? What's the health of my nervous system? You know, all of that compacted on each other. Like, that's my starting point. And then you throw Lyme onto the mix, what happens? You know, it, and that's part of why it's different in every person. That's why it doesn't present exactly the same in every person because it's so complex and difficult. And Lyme is smart. Borrelia burgdorferi is smart. And it's terrifying and elegant and beautiful all at the same time. And so I can be kind of enthralled and like, wow, how can it do all this? And then go, oh my gosh, how does it do all this, right? And it, that's part of what it does is it talks to other bacteria, other viruses. They, they combine in the biofilms and they share information and they get smarter. And it just, it just compounds and it's, it's wow, but wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Dr. Alan McDonald calls it a diabolical disease or a diabolical bacteria. And I think that's a good way to put it. But I want to bring this back to the theme of Lyme Awareness Month for us at Tick Food Camp, which is the hackathon, right? What are some Lyme hacks and tips we can give to the community? And I really loved your hack, Dr. Kelly, which was really about the nervous system and regulating your nervous system. And this ties into a community question we got when we did a poll for this live event from uh, regarding healing depression from Lyme disease and using neurofeedback from Leslie Les 765 And the question we want to ask you is, what are some techniques you recommend? Because in your Lyme hack, you talked about things like binaural beats. You talked about some brain rewiring programs that are a little more rigid, like DNRS and Gupta. But a lot of people DM'd us and commented saying, well, what are some of these apps Dr. Kelly is talking about? And could you go a little bit deeper into why it's so important to address these things if I'm trying to kill the thing that's making me sick, right? There's a lot of questions we got there. And if you can give us some more meat on the bone with that topic to help, mm -hmm. us, and help us learn from that. Yeah. When we're sick with these chronic issues, we live in fight or flight. Our cells are in danger mode, literally, and they get stuck. And that affects our nervous system gets stuck as well. And our nervous system and our immune system are intertwined. You know, they're not really separate, they're together. And our nervous system really thinks it's helping us by sending out inflammation and, you know, trying to respond to all of this. And we end up in this perpetual state of, you know, fight or flight, like you can't stop. And some of us actually even move farther into freeze. I've been there, you know, looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, like 
I was freeze. Like you just, you can't do anything. Um, and so part of healing from all of this and healing and repairing the immune system is healing and repairing the nervous system and just, you know, giving that nervous system a chance to go, <sighs> even if it's just for a second, you know, giving it that break. And so there are lots of tricks and tips and things out there. And I usually, it depends on how sick people are, but I typically will start with a lot of the more passive ways to support your system because that's more of what people can handle initially versus more of the active um, uh, primal trust or DNRS like that, like we're kind of kind of di diving into some of that trauma and toxic thoughts. But binaural beats are a great way. You just sit and listen to music, you know, and you can do it while you're asleep. Um, it helps to reset your brainwaves. It's different tones and different ears that helps, it correlates to a very specific brainwave that is either to focus or to sleep or, you know, however, however you want to do it. Um, there's an app called BrainTap Pro for that. Um, there's a lot of research behind that. They also have a, a like an like a laser eye thing that you can get as well. I find that, I found that to be way too much for me when I started. Um, there's also Insight Timer. That's one of my favorite apps. It's free and there's loads of binaural beats on there. You can just search in there for binaural beats. Um, I also really like tapping. I think tapping is a nice, pretty passive way to work into this. And there's loads of free stuff on YouTube for tapping. There's an, an app for tapping too, the tapping solution but that's using different acupressure points to calm the nervous system. I find that's a pretty good regulatory deep breath. Um, you can, you know, search on YouTube for tapping for sleep, tapping for anxiety, tapping for immune support, whatever you, whatever you want to focus on. Um, there are um, a fair amount of um, vagus nerve exercises available too. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure you can Google all of this too. I've learned it from some functional medicine um, neurologists, um, some, some neurochiropractors, where you kind of look at, you know, your thumb and move your head and kind of focus and, and do some different shifting there. That can also really, you know, calm the system. So those are, I mean, those are some of the passive ways. I've, I've had people go to hypnosis. That's fairly passive too, but can be pretty wonderful for some changes. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do it, but it is a part of the process. I just wanted to segue this because one of the things that I know I'm not doing a good enough job with in this community is being sensitive to the fact that although there's a great benefit to brain retraining and nervous system regulation techniques, many people come at us and say, hey, look, I'm really physically sick and I feel like you're making it less significant that I actually have a real illness. And I feel like you're making it less significant that this is a serious disease. You would never go to somebody who has cancer and tell them focus on mindset, focus on your nervous system. And I wanna argue that maybe we should be. Anybody who has any kind of illness and even somebody who is healthy and not experiencing any symptoms would benefit from all these techniques. But I believe that adding these techniques on top of whatever we're doing to treat Lyme disease as well is gonna help us get better quicker. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Can you help yeah. me explain that better to this community, how this is not the sole source solution, but this is something that will supplement your healing and your treatment protocol to get you to your goal quicker? Yeah. But Matt, can I, can I back together before, before you ask, I do wanna add something to that. And that is, 
you know, this may be a different disease than other diseases, right? Because you are going to have bugs in your brain with this disease, and you're not, in many other cases, going to have that as well. And because there are bugs attacking you as opposed to some other types of diseases you may have, you're, it may not be triggering, and you may not find yourself in fight or flight. So this may be different, and that may be the reason why you have to do that, even if it's a generally a good yeah, practice. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a plethora of research about meditation and cancer. You know, there's a lot of research. There are, um, you know, a lot of more hmm, holistically minded cancer centers, especially that are preaching. You got to meditate. You got to do this. You, you, you know, it's like they understand that that's a part of this process as well for other chronic illnesses. And I think I agree. I think this should be this is a part of every chronic illness. I just try to make it a point. I, I, I've learned over the years to explain it a little bit better. But I still always try to say, look, I am not saying you are making this up. You are not making this up. This is real. It's physiological and your nervous system is tr doing its best. God love it. It's doing its best to try and help you, but it's gone off the rails and you thankfully have some control to get it back on the rails and you can really help yourself get better faster. If you start to employ some of these tools to help yourself, but it's a piece of the puzzle, right? It's not going to fix everything, but it's going to help you feel better along the way. And the people that I can convince to do this work, Get better, faster, stay better longer. Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about, I want to revisit a topic we talked about last time, which is prehabilitation and getting yourself ready for the battle. Uh, we've had many occasions to interview folks who have gone aggressively into treatment and they've gotten sicker. Uh, and I, I think there isn't enough conversation about prehabilitation. It's actually something we, we interviewed your colleague, uh, Dr. D.T. Agarwal, and she had shared with us some of her thinking on uh, prehabilitation. We started to research prehabilitation, and we think that really should be a vital part of everyone's treatment plan. I'd like you to talk a little bit uh, about prehabilitation. Yeah, and how you know, you use we approach everybody practice. uniquely here, and there are people who we can go ahead and start right away with a medication or an herb or something. But there are a fair amount of people that come in and we say, gosh, I can't give you treatment yet because it will crush you. And that is not good for anybody. And it's not going to help. It's just going to be a mess. And we don't want that. We want to help you get better. Um, and, you know, that is hard for some people to hear because they finally have an answer and they just want to move forward. But a lot of a lot of that time, they're just really sensitive to everything. You know, you, you open a bottle of minocycline antibiotic in front of them and they hurt, right? Wow. Um, you know, and so you can't, you cannot just jump into it with every patient. You know, there's the right patient and the wrong patient. Some of that's just good clinical, you know, wherewithal and learning about this along the way. But um, some of the big areas to really prepare yourself is one, make sure you're eating the right foods. You know, food is medicine. A lot of times we have to start with gut healing and getting the gut in better working order because that's where most of your immune system is. So if your gut isn't working, your immune system isn't working. So that's going to make it harder to fight these no matter what antibiotics I give you, right? And the other big one is um, detox, supporting that detox, making sure we're opening up the detox pathways gently but effectively as much as possible ahead of time will really help people tolerate the treatment. So it's not unheard of that we take several months to really get people to a spot where they can handle treatment. And often just by doing that work, people start to feel better because we're opening up a freeing space for their system to be able to start to, to tackle this on their own.
Rich, I'd like to circle back real quick to one of our community questions because we have Leslie Les765 on who is one of the person who submitted questions earlier on. And she wants to know, Dr. Kelly, if you can just talk to us more specifically about neural feedback and what your thoughts are in using that as a specific treatment protocol and an aid in, in Lyme disease. Absolutely. So we have microcurrent neurofeedback in, in our practice. And it's a little different than traditional neurofeedback. Traditional neurofeedback, you sit with a bunch of electrodes on your, you know, on your skull and you stare at a computer screen. You actively try to change your brain waves to get to a more relaxed state or more focused state. Um, it works. There's a good amount of research for this. It can take a really long time to really see those changes and get them into effect. And it's, it's hard, especially if your brain isn't working on all cylinders like most of our Lyme patients are. So we started using microcurrent neurofeedback, which is much more passive. It's, it's microcurrent. I mean, it's, you know, a million times less stronger than your cell phone. It's really not a lot of electricity or current that you're getting, but you just get to sit there. You don't have to think, you don't have to work. You just get to relax. It takes about 30 minutes or so to do the procedure. Um, and we start low and we kind of work our way up, but this will, very passively start to change those brain waves for you to get them. And like my visualization of this, and I don't know how right this is, but this is kind of how my mind works. You've got these jagged, anxious, you know, inflamed brain waves, and it starts to just kind of help get everything a little more balanced. It helps neurotransmitters get more balanced, but more importantly, what this one does that regular neurofeedback doesn't is help to detox the brain. It opens up glymphatic channels to help the brain detox. And it's hard for the brain to detox. That blood-brain barrier makes it hard for things to get in. It also makes it hard for things to get out once they're in there. And so we have really seen some big changes due to that. Um, we also, at our clinic, we also give everyone charcoal afterwards, and we have them use molecular hydrogen, inhaled uh, molecular hydrogen afterwards. So again, this is my, my brain and how I wrap my head around it. We're kind of shaking the snow globe a little bit with it. And you can get an overstimulation from neurofeedback. But once we started using the neuro, the charcoal and the hydrogen, we didn't, we have not seen that wow. ever happen. The hydrogen molecule is the tiniest molecule and it crosses the blood brain barrier. And what it does is look for cytotoxic radicals and turns them into water. So all of that kind of snow, we just kind of released it, whoo, turns it into water. And so it's also just in and of itself very soothing and calming and people have to pee afterwards because they need a lot more water. Um, but between the two, those two things where we've got a little bit of a sponge with the charcoal, we've got the hydrogen, we don't see overstimulation. Anxiety gets better rapidly within one to two treatments. We're seeing changes with anxiety. Energy gets better. Mental clarity gets better. It's a great addition to um, our resources here. So I just want to ask because we had a question about rice, but frequency therapy in general, because we know there's PENF therapy, we know there's the AMCOIL, we know there's rife. And, you know, Ali, Rich and I are testing out the NICI, right, which is where we're having so much fun with and the different frequency modes that help you with various things. And it seems so crazy to me that frequencies can be healing because we know there's bad frequencies, like maybe things like 5G and EMS, and then there's good healing frequencies or, or even frequencies that can help maybe kill viruses and bacteria. Can you just explain for us what is frequency therapy? How does it work? And then your views of the various products out there from you know, the Wave device, the NICI, PMF, you know, Amcoil, Rice, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, actually, it's interesting because I am getting a frequency specific microcurrent device kind of brought in actually in a couple weeks, and I'm going to get to play with it a little bit um, from a physical medicine and rehab doc. He's going to help share and teach me about it. I'm very fascinated, you know, about this. These things are used in hospital settings these days for chronic pain, especially is where a lot of that research is done. Um, and we have a lot of people with pain, right? So in and of itself, like there's a lot of research and evidence behind this, this stuff. And so I am still a newbie at really looking into this modality and the, the research and how it works and how to use it and how to help patients, you know, um, benefit from it. So I'm really excited to, to, to bring this on and learn more about it. I, I love, I love geeking out and learning about new things. Um, just the experience that I've had with patients doing this, you know, I, I have had, I have a good handful of people who do rife. Um, and I've seen some herxes, like I've seen some big herxes from this. It's pretty impressive. You're like, wow, you know, um, but I've also seen people do really, really well with it. So, you know, I think in the right hands, it could be a very powerful tool. Um, I, I want to believe that it can, can't do much harm, but I can't say that it can't because like you said, there's good frequencies and bad. So, you know, you know, I think you have to be with somebody who knows what they're doing to, to really kind of figure that out. Um, so yeah, you guys will have to let me know how you yeah. do with yeah. yours. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested. It's a really interesting area of, of science here. So when you were in medical school or at any education level, was the electron something that you had studied? Um, I mean, we, we, we know, of course, about the biome, and, and that's something that we, we, we're all generally aware of, but the electron seems to be something that we're now starting to become more aware of. And yeah, just wondering whether or not that was a part of your educational experience. And um, if it wasn't, why do you think it wasn't? And do you think you functional medical docs are now just sort of blazing a new trail here? And, and, and starting to recognize that we are uh, energetic beings. Our, you know, our, we, we, our cells have little power plants in the mitochondria. And it certainly does make sense when you have all this gunk in your cell, whether it be in your cells, whether it be the bugs or the, or the, um, you know, the many other things that they develop um, you know, inside of our cells, how that might have an impact on our ability to be in energetic. And, you know, we do know that the number one, the number one symptom that all Lyme patients have in common is fatigue. And, you know, this sort of all seems like it should be coming together. And, and uh, this may be a, you know, a really um, rich area of, no uh, intended of folks dealing with Lyme. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, I did not learn about that. And I didn't learn about Lyme disease in med school. Though, to be fair, I, I mean, I think it's cute that you think I'm young enough that I went to med school and this would have been around at the time. <laughs> so thank you for that. No, yeah, I didn't. I didn't, um, I didn't learn about a lot of this stuff in med school, though. I really had to go out on my own and be curious and think this is not enough. This is not helping people the way I want to help people. Like, what, what else can I learn? And that's how I really got into integrative medicine in the first place was that curiosity. And then it, you know, trickles down and brings to Lyme every time. And there you go. To follow up with another community question, I think this is a really good one. The question is, we have certain intolerances as Lyme patients. And even as we get better, some of those intolerances remain. And it's hard to balance life with those intolerances. And specifically, this question from Calbral Dini's, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, is when we have a sun, a sun in, uh, sensitivity and we're, out, you know, we're outside and we have a flare-up. 
is it really a flare-up? Is it just a symptom flare? Or is it actually maybe a Herxheimer reaction from the sun helping our bodies flush, you know, kill the bacteria and get all this stuff out of us? So the curious, is it a flare or is it a Herxheim die-off when we're out in the sun? And what's really triggering the heat intolerance that so many of us in the Lyme community have experienced? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that flares and Herxing are necessarily different. I mean, at the end of the day in my world, these are all cytokine storms. Mm. These are immune reactions. You know, what's triggering it? doesn't matter. I mean, a lot of the same things that are going to treat a flare are going to treat a Herx with that terminology. So, you know, it, it's an over, it's an overabundance of a reaction in our system. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We want our immune system to re respond. It's just, you know, it's just too much for our system to handle. Um, and it can be really hard to tell what the difference is. Um, and, you know, it also can be sometimes it's a flare. Sometimes it's a herx. Like it, it, it can. It, there's no black and white answer here. Um, it's very gray, and there's still a lot to learn about what it all actually is. But the good news is, the things that are like the things that are going to help are going to help. You know. So you still have to learn kind of whatever it is for you, whatever why you're feeling bad. Um, the that herx support that toolkit that you have that that you can kind of pull out of that box when you need it will help in either situation usually. Jason's got a good question here. What are some of those things? If all of this is a cytokine storm, it's inflammation. So I'm out in the sun and I'm, and I'm feeling cruddy. It's from inflammation. What can we do? What are some cheap and affordable things I can do, either buy over the counter or you know, just do that I have in my house potentially to curb the inflammation so maybe I can enjoy a little bit of sun if I'm still heat intolerant? Yeah, exactly. So I actually have a little detox lemonade that I like a lot. Um, juice of half a lemon. You can do anywhere from a teaspoon to a tablespoon of baking soda and then two to five drops of stevia in some water and you can make it hot or cold. Um, that actually is very alkalizing and soothing. You do want to be careful with your teeth. If you're drinking a lot of lemon water, maybe use a straw. Um, that's a very affordable way to help support this. Um, Alka-Seltzer Gold is a good popular one. It's very similar. It's that alkalizing um, uh, formulation. Epsom salt baths can be great too. Not so great if you have a really big heat intolerance issue. So they can make things worse or sometimes worse with pots. So let's see. Um, there's a handful of supplements that are also very useful. Berber Panella is a really good one by Nutramedics. 20 drops up to eight times a day. Glutathione up to 2,000 milligrams a day. Um, SPM Active. So these are specialized pro-resolving mediators. Now there's several companies that are making these now. SPM Active is kind of one of the original by Metagenics. These are from fish oil, but not fish oil. Uh, they resolve inflammation that's already there. When you're in a flare, when you're in a herx, you're, you're inflamed, right? So this helps to clear out the inflammation that's already there. And you can do two pills up to three or four times a day. You know, you just have to kind of play around with some of these things. Even, you know, with a Babesia, Flare Benadryl can yep. be really good. So sometimes you just have to kind of play with different things and figure out what your what works for you and then have that as your go-to. Something that always fascinated me, and, and I've learned it and I honestly forgot because it was last year, how is lemon good for a Herx? Because we generally think if it's acidic, it creates inflammation. It cre that's uh, hospitable for disease, right? Yeah. And yet it's very good for Herxing. And you talked about Alka-Seltzer Gold, which is, you know, it alkalizes your body and that's good. So how does lemon and lemon water help when you would think it's acidic and it's not good for a Herx, right? That's always interesting yeah. to me. Because it's not acidic in your system. It's actually alkalizing. 
Although it can create canker sores and it seems acidic, it's really not once it gets into your body. Once it gets in. Exactly. Yep. And the second follow-up to this question, though, is we, Ava Shapi, and this is, you know, from many, uh, you know, I'll say at least a couple of years ago, she did that accidental study where she found that stevia not only brings out the Lyme bacteria from the cyst form to the spirochetal form, but it actually killed it under a microscope. And a lot of people think that may not be 100% accurate. There's a lot of debate there, but do you put stevia in your cocktail you describe because you think it has antimicrobial properties and can help bring the Lyme out and kill it? Or is that just something that was a happy coincidence there and not related to that research? It's a little bit of both. Um, one, it's like sweet without really affecting your blood sugar. But when we take stevia orally, it, we don't really absorb it. It stays in your gut. That's one of the reasons why it doesn't really affect your blood sugar. So it might help with biofilm or other things in your gut. I'm really not sure systemically in vivo, in a real life person, how much it's actually doing inside your cells because it doesn't really get there. It stays in your gut. So that's, you know, I think that's an important point with a lot of this research too. In vitro means in a test tube, right? And that does not always correlate to in vivo, which is in the body, right? So I think it's interesting, but again, I think it pretty much stays in the gut so I don't usually, I've, I don't know if I've ever really seen stevia cause a big Herxheimer reaction in anyone. It's possible. but I, I think it's part of the counter protocol, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and I usually use it when people need to help get those herbs down, <laughs> just from a flavor standpoint. Um, but yeah, in the gut, it's going to help with biofilm. So it's beneficial on that point as well. But if we can get it into your cells, we might see some different effects of it. Yeah, we had an, another question that I really wanted to address because I think it's it's an important one. And this was from Bunny Ducko too, who said if we if he just got a, di a diagnosis of Lyme disease, can he ride it out or does he really need to treat Lyme disease? And, you know, my immediate reaction is like, well, I think you need to treat, of course, right? But then it brings me to Dr. Marty Ross's point when Jenny Bataccio and I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. He said, look, there are some things in some cases where I find, hey, look, you have a really bad fungal problem, or you have a really bad, you know, case of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And if I can address that, your immune system may manage and battle the Lyme on its own, right? So I guess, first off, I, if you have a Lyme diagnosis, can you just say, hey, my immune system will deal with it on its own? Or if that's not the case, maybe should we look, be looking at other things that may be more prominent? And if we do that, Lyme will be easier to manage, you know, by our, by our immune system on its own. Yeah, um, there's so many layers to answer this. I think, you know, and this is just my opinion. I don't necessarily have any science or evidence behind this, but I feel like there probably are a lot of people walking down the street who have Lyme and have no idea because they're, they're managing it, right, in yep. finger quotes. Um, they can chalk up their fatigue to, you know, being busy or their pain to be getting older or, you know, what have you, but they're okay, right, until they're not, right? But there's some people that are just okay, they're okay with it, right? Because their system has managed to kind of keep it there. And in that sense, I really think that trying to eradicate every single last spirit key mm -hmm. from your system is futile. That is not where I want to put my energy and effort. I want to get the immune system to be strong enough to be able to keep it in its pretty little box and leave me alone, just like my chicken pox in its, in its pretty little box, leaving me alone, right? Um, so, you know, I there's just, there's, there's so much to it. So I agree with Dr. Ross. Like I don't, I'm not always treating mine, but that's part of that um, prehabilitation 
conversation we were having earlier too, if I can get the gut healed, if I can get detox supported, if I can get the nervous system to calm down, a lot of times symptoms get better and labs get better because we freed up space for the body to be able to handle more and, and get everything into its pretty little spot better, right? So we don't always have to aggressively treat Lyme disease. And I'm using more and more um, herbs long-term too, not even in like high dose kill doses, but more like maintenance, sweep the street doses for I'm like, you feel good, stay on it. Like, you know, like Dr. Rawls, he's never gonna stop his herbs, right? Never. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, and yep, it is right. really, really safe to stay on these things, right? <laughs> nor, I, mean, nor I, I hope yep. I can be windsurfing at his age, right? Seriously. You know? <laughs> Like, you know, just bow down, right? It's pretty awesome. Um, so do you have to treat it? Not 100% of the time. Do you have to address it and deal with it one way or another? Yes. Because if you don't, you can end up with Alzheimer's, yeah. right? You can end up with uh, all these issues. So it's, but it's not necessarily about full-blown attack, right? It's more about healing and repairing and that. Well, but isn't, but isn't, but isn't prehabilitation treating, right? I mean, why do we have to call treatment only killing? Why is it only going to be antibiotics? Yes. Couldn't it be a number of other things and treatment is really just engaging in sound practices, sound yeah. health, uh, healthy practices, right? And, and there's another piece of the gut health that I, you know, that I just wanted to ask you about, which is, of course, we talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, the, 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 emotional and neurological piece of this but of course um most of the serotonin in your system is 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 at least stored in your gut but probably generated in your gut and of course your immune system uh is 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 in large part again i, I understand it's a complex system but in your gut as well so if you're treating your gut first as part of your prehabilitation you may be in a position where you're putting yourself in a position where you have changes in your neurological and emotional systems, which then could calm down the fight or flight, which then puts you in a position where you're more likely to have immune health and immune management of 100%. all the bugs in your system. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of why it's hard for some docs to wrap their head around this too, because it's not, it's, it's not just an infection and it's not just about taking an antibiotic for two weeks or 30 days. It is, it's just so much more than that. And to really, really heal, you have to look at all those different aspects. And so attack mode and kill mode is a part, but it's not even arguably the biggest part for a lot of people. It's, it's all about doing all the other stuff to, to heal the system. Pivot to another question. We, we had so many. I want to try to get as many of them as possible. And one of them was around heart rate variability. And I think that's kind of related to our, our discussion of nervous system regulation and how it can be used in it from a biofeedback standpoint. Can you just explain first, Dr. Kelly, what is HRT or heart rate variability so we can understand that at a simple level and then maybe recommend some resources or tools people can investigate to see if it's something worth their while in their healing journey? Yeah. You know, we used to think that as adults, you had like one rhythm of your heart. Um, we know infants, babies and mama's belly don't. That's why we monitor them. And there's this, you know, natural curve related to mama's breath and contractions and all these other things. Um, and what we used to think it was much more rigid as an adult or a child. Um, it's not like there is a variability in our heart rate and it has to do with our breath and our stress and our mental state and all of these different things. 
And so, yeah, this is another great way to try to get your, your system and your, not only your, your heart, but your nervous system and your immune system into a more relaxed and, and calmer state. Heart math is the best one that I, I really am aware of. It's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. I mean, all this stuff is expensive, right? We spend all of our money on this. Um, you, you just like a little earlobe device that you connect to your phone and five minutes, a couple times a day, you use your breath to get your heart rate down. So it's biofeedback as well. It's just, it's not neurofeedback. It's not technically on your brain, but it is a biofeedback using your body's rhythms to, to change your, your system. And it can be rather effective to really um, get things down. And what I find interesting about it is it's, it's almost contagious. So if you go into, if you walk into a room with someone who is in a very zen state and their heart rate variability is very calm and green and, and open, if you walk into that room, you, your heart rate variability will join theirs. Like it's pretty wild. That's cool. What, what can do. Yeah. Yeah. So find that zen um, <laughs> heart rate so variability person <laughs> here. <laughs> So this is going back to this electron conversation we were having, and not only is the electron something that we have from the standpoint of being energetic beings and uh, having uh, a mitochondria, you know, generating energy, but now we are we are exuding energy and we're receiving energy from other people and other sources with the waves that are that are yeah. around us that we can. I'm very see. empathetic too, so I'm very aware of that. Um, I feel like a lot of Limeys are too, and they don't even recognize that they're getting anxious because someone around them is anxious too. Um, so there's a lot of learning to like control that and kind of keep my space and, and, and hold open space for my patients, but not absorb all of that, that energy on my, on myself too. And I know that it, it sounds woo woo, but man, it is, it's for real. And, but it works, yeah. right? I mean, if no. you talked to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, all oh, this stuff is crazy, but it's changed my life truly, you know? <laughs> So but on this note, I want to ask you a, you know, a question because I think this is a really – I was never as sensitive to stress or overstimulation before getting sick and getting Lyme disease. So I've had to implement a lot of techniques in my life where I feel stress coming on or I'm in a stressful situation in my personal life or in my professional life that I can do you know, that are either so – nobody knows. I could be in a meeting and do it internally and have a, you know, a calming result. Or if I'm by myself, I have some techniques I can do to calm myself down. What is something you'd recommend a very quick and simple technique if somebody's feeling overwhelmed, depressed, anxious, or just defeated that they can do to just balance themselves out that we can implement every single day of our lives? Ooh, good question. I mean, one simple thing is just to take a deep breath, put your hands on your heart and say, I love myself, you know, and just take just a couple deep breaths. And I tell people, you can do this when you're in the bathroom. No one has to see you do it, you know? Um, you can do it when you're in a meeting. No one has to know that you're going. Is, it true? Is it, <laughs> it true the exhale should be longer than the inhale to get the optimal nervous system regulation? We've heard that, and I'm not sure how, how valid that is. Yeah, generally, um, I, I remember four and eight. In through your nose for four, out through your mouth for eight four to eight times in a row, four to eight times a day. Um, there's also more box breathing where it's like four in, hold for seven, breathe out for eight. Um, as a Babesia person, holding my breath never made me feel good, always made me feel worse. So I never really held it. Um, so you, can, you have to you know, adjust and modify according to what's going on for you. We're not good breathers. 
We are not. We're not. We use our shoulders. We don't use our diaphragm. And so most of us are very shallow breathing anyway. So yeah, if we can just take a few seconds and, and maybe even set of your heart, if you want to hold on your belly to make sure your belly actually expands with that breath, you're going to get more from it. But yeah, that exhale longer than the inhales where a lot of that magic happens to really relax. Your humming recommendation from your Lime Hack, I literally do that every day driving to work and it is just like blissful. It's just the most relaxing thing. And it sounds so silly, but, and I probably sound like ridiculous, right? And, and every, but you just deep breaths in and, and you hum, <laughs> Richard, you do, and you hum really loud. The, the, the more vibration you have, the better it is to stimulate the vagus nerve, right? And for me, it's just an awesome experience to do that. So uh, another quick question though, from the community is, uh, we had K, KJM Riley, and I believe that they're still on. Uh, and asked it again in the chat is what impact does chronic Lyme and chronic illness in general have on metabolic health? And, you know, how can we curb that and balance that out? I mean, Lyme has an effect on every part of our health, right? And so it's really going to affect our ability to digest our food, you know, um, make and break down sugar. Um, in and of itself, it can have effects on our heart and in our heart rate variability, but also just our, our heart muscles, et cetera. So, um, and it makes us tired. So we don't work out or exercise maybe like we should, um, or, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, right. It, it, so it really affects every, every part of it. Um, and so it's just a big piece of the puzzle that has to be worked on and healed. I want to ask you a controversial question because I had one view and I'm always having my eyes opened up by people. So the Lyme vaccine, and I'm always anxious. We've heard so many stories. The first one I, I can remember is being Michaela Vatcher, who got the HPV vaccine, and that was her trigger for chronic Lyme. And it's been an uphill battle for so many years since. And thank God she's doing amazing now. But the Lyme vaccine that's now out, I mean, I think it's Pfizer and Val, Valneva, right, who are they're, they're very close to having something out to the general public. My, my thought is, well, that's just Lyme disease. It's to your point earlier, it's Borrelia burgdorferi. And when I made that argument to Dr. Ross again a few weeks ago, when we interviewed him, he said, well, Matt, be careful because, yes, it's just Borrelia burgdorferi, but if we, can, if we can prevent that from a reinfection or prevent that from somebody, maybe the scale won't be tipped and maybe they won't become chronically ill. Or maybe that's enough for their immune system to kick in and help them do what it needs to do, but it couldn't because it was so burdened. It's like, what is your view on that? Because I was so negative, but Dr. Ross really gave me an opposing view that I think has a lot of validity to it as well. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if there's a right or wrong here. I think this is more of an individualized answer and, and process that you would have to go through. Like if this is avail if this comes out, you know, one of my questions will be how often do you have to get it? Do you have to get it every year? You know, do we have to, is this kind of like the flu shot where we just kind of have to keep going and how many do you want to do, you know? Um, I think everybody has to weigh the pros and cons and Yes, it could potentially, like Dr. Rawls say, lower the overall burden, which is awesome. But on the flip side, you could have a potential vaccine reaction. And you just don't know what you're going to get, you know. And if you are someone who has had a, a vaccine reaction in the past, you know, do you want to do that? I don't, I don't know. There's not, you know, long-term safety data on this right now um, to know, too, like what are the potential risks? I don't know. I haven't seen any of those listed out for me yet. You know, you know, where are those at? So I think you have to just kind of, you have to take this out, this, this, these potential treatments or preventions as a piece of the puzzle, 
and, and do what makes sense for you. Um, talk to your doctor, decide what makes sense. And if it makes sense, do it. If it doesn't make sense, don't, you know, I don't, I'm not an, an anti-vaxxer. I'm not also not an only vaxxer. I think you have the right to make some decisions here medically for yourself. And I think you should be allowed to do that. There's a piece of this that makes me anxious about the vaccine. And this is for folks who are not yet chronically ill from Lyme. Uh, but what, what can happen is you, you take this vaccine, you're then less cautious about how you behave when you're in the community. You think you're going to be protected from this uh, polymicrobial disease when it's only one strain of one bacteria that you're going to be protected from. So in addition to the challenges that I think it may create for folks in the Lyme community and folks who are not yet chronically ill because it may trigger the illness as a result of a vaccine reaction, I think it's also dangerous because it makes it more likely that people will be less responsible when they're in, uh, you know, when they're in the wild and, and they may not be taking the precautions they need to take to protect themselves. Yeah, from the that's true. You're not going to be bulletproof from all of this by the vaccine, it, you know? So that's a very, very good point. And it, yeah, I, you know, I would worry that people are, you know, don't wear their protective gear, don't use their tick spray, don't do their tick checks because it's no big deal. Or they get a tick bite and they don't worry about it because they got the vaccine, so they're fine. We have another, uh, this will be our last community question, but we have a question from Kelly A. Scott 08, who said that she has been treating Lyme for a year and she's doing really well, feeling much better. But the knee pain is so bad that she's unable to really walk at all, you know, really, you know, beyond just, you know, some basic movement around. And I can relate to that. I had exercise intolerance for, oh my goodness, at least eight years. And for me, it was really calming down that inflammation and the autoimmunity response that was key. And for me, it was back and neck pain that would be debilitating if I went for a long walk or tried to do a jog or a run. But what is your advice for people like Kelly and myself, we just had a really hard time getting back to movement after, you know, trying to overcome Lyme disease and getting, trying to get our health back. Mm -hmm. Well, it, de it depends on kind of where that, that pain is. I think we'll, once we get to a spot where it may just be a knee or both knees or something a little more localized, things like ozone injections or PRP can do wonders to repair that joint because they're just damaged, right? And it needs to be healed and repaired. And sometimes all the pills in the world aren't going to fix it. You need to kind of get in there in that joint and really repair it. So that's where Dr. Agarwal, for example, at our clinic comes in because she can help really kind of get there and repair. And that these are things that are gonna stimulate healing of the joint, not just lower inflammation, but actually work on regenerating the joint. It's a little harder when it's all over back pain, but you can do trigger point injections, things like that too. Sometimes it's just more, it becomes anatomical, not so, so systemic, if you will. It's not, not systemic, but you, you understand you're following my train of thought here, yes? yes. Okay. Um, so sometimes you have to do yes. some localized treatments to remind the system that it's not done working on that joint or that neck or that back or, or what, what the spot is. And that can do really wonders. And then once that knee stops bothering you and you're able to walk a little bit and build and grow, like that can be very, very life-changing. So. So Matt, so we can let Dr. Kelly get back to her family. She's been kind enough to work with us for the, uh, almost an hour. So Dr. Kelly, in the last three minutes, can you talk to us about what you see on the horizon? And what is exciting you? I'm always looking forward? for new and innovative things um, that are safe and effective. So I talked about frequency specific microcurrent. We're also looking at red light and laser options. Um, we do a fair amount of methylene blue. You know, we're always just trying to kind of find different ways to help people get better. 
And I think there's more and more immunological support stuff that's coming out. And some of the long hauler stuff is also working on the Lyme patients. No surprise to us, right? Yep. But to have those tools and have that availability, right. it's also, it's expanding that toolbox even more to help people get better faster. So, and I, you know, SOT, that's another one we're using. You know, I'm always using new stuff and trying to help people get better because everyone needs something different. We have to approach it differently for everybody. But I'm, ex I, like I said, I'm excited. I think there's some really cool stuff coming out and we're making some progress. We're making some progress and this is reassuring and good. It's still, it's going to take forever because that's how the medicine world rolls, but we're seeing momentum and it's a good shift. Rich, I do want to ask one question about SOT because we had a, a doctor reach out recently on TikTok of all places and tell us that, you know, he believes SOT is, is the solution for the Lyme community and that SOT is something that can address at least 95% of chronic Lyme patients. And I think SOT has value, but again, it makes me anxious to think that 95% of Lyme patients can take SOT and just get their lives back. So what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Kelly? I just have to ask. There's just no magic bullet, right? And I think um, from, from what I'm gathering, from what I'm learning of, of getting into the SOT, and I, I researched SOT for a good year and a half before we started using it here. Um, there, there certainly are clinics who are just like, yeah, come in, get it. No, you know, it, it's a piece part of the puzzle and at the right time in the right place, it can be a game changer, you know, but is it right for everybody? No. Are you going to get the right bug every time? Probably not. You can do one bug at a time. Right. And so it's yes. a plethora of steps. So, you know, how many do you have to do to get them all? Like, you know, we're still figuring all of that out, but I think for the right patient at the right time, it's a game changer. Absolutely. Yeah. But 95% of everyone all the time, you just, you can't say that in the Lyme community. We're too, we're too unique. And it's crushing it's when you, think something uh, yeah. is going to be the answer and it's not it, it sets you back right because the emotional state you get in a right. funk and then you maybe aren't thinking logically you aren't taking proper steps to move forward next in your journey and it's just it's it's really i think not a good way to approach healing so well man and then the, of course the, the repeated disappointment and the impact that has on you emotionally which then has that same impact on you neurologically and 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 your immuno uh responses is is, is just a a challenge that we can't ignore. So I, I think it's great, uh, as Dr. Kelly said, Absolutely. that we add another tool to the toolbox and we consider you know, we consider using all of these tools in different ways, but to I, I think it is irresponsible for any practitioner to hold out a particular therapy as a cure-all for everyone. It really is, in my view, yeah. uh, irresponsible. I'm not gonna disagree with you. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I digress. I, I know. Right. So we, we are exactly at o'clock. Dr. Kelly, right. you, you know, you're one of our favorite doctors in the world. You know that you are going to be back every year. If you're willing for Lyme Please. Awareness Month, we will I have you back you. time and time again for the Lyme Hackathon, for these lives, for these really informative discussions, because, you know, there are very few people who are making true change in the medical field, especially in the MD arena for chronic Lyme patients, you're one of them. And we refer you out to people all over the world, believe it or not. And uh, it's just, you know, you, I, I tease, you know, I'm like, look, Rich had to treat with somebody for his tick bite. Who do you treat with? Dr. Kelly. That's who we recommend. So we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day. And we know it's Lyme Awareness Month and you're doing, oh, also congrats on being on the news as well. I mean, we saw you on the news. That was so cool. So that was a really <laughs> awesome, really cool thing yeah. to see. And uh, just thank you again. I know, Rich, you want to say some concluding remarks too. Again, thank you, Dr. Kelly, as always. You're not just one of my favorite doctors, you're one of my favorite people. You're, you're a blessing every time we get to talk with you. So thank you again oh, for joining us. This is my pleasure, my honor, you guys. Weekend. I love you as well. This is so much fun. I'm, I look forward to it every year. So let's keep it going.